viewpoint, opinion, and perspective shared on Jerry Unfiltered is a culmination of over 20 years of personal experiential knowledge and research into the unification of science and consciousness called quantum morphogenetic physics, which is a paradigm-shifting, disruptive science not taught in the mainstream public educational systems. The intention of Jerry Unfiltered is simple, to awaken, to be aware, and to be able to reclaim the original, perpetual life, human potential. Don't say you want me, don't say you need me, don't say you love me, it's understood. Don't say you're happy out there without me, I know you can't be, cause it's no good. Okay, hey everyone, uh, this is Jer Rivera de Henio, and you are joining us on Jerry Unfiltered, the video podcast. Today, I have a very special guest uh, joining us uh, that I'm very proud to say, and I can call an actual friend of mine. I don't have too many on this planet, but I can actually consider Andrew Di Basiago one of my friends. He is uh, an American lawyer, writer, inventor, chrononaut, uh, an experientialist, which we will get into. Uh, and Andy served in uh, DARPA's Project Pegasus back in the 60s and 70s, I believe, as a child participant. But we'll get into that. Andy, welcome to Jerry Unfiltered. How are you, my friend? Jerry, wonderful to be with you again. Um, it's been too long. And I'm just delighted that uh, you've launched this radio program, and I, I, I see bright days ahead for it and, and for you, of course, as I always do. <laughs> what has it been? I think it's been over two years since I've, we've been together, or what, what, what would you say? Um, I remember we were hanging out, uh, I, I believe it was March of 2018, uh, in mm -hmm. Reno. And then, of course, we right. did that trip to Malaysia in uh, June of 2018. Correct. So I think it's yep. been almost years. Way too long. And I'm very, very happy that you agreed to be one of the keynote speakers at next year's Biogenesis in Miami. So thank you for for uh you know agreeing and, and being part of it. So Andy, tell me what you've been up to since I've seen you. Well, you know, I've had progressive vision loss from retinopathy. And I decided not to give up. Um, it's been a really critical um, period in my life. I reconnected with one of my brothers, who's a very gifted uh, surgeon and physician. And oh, that's he right. guided yeah. mm -hmm. proper care of my health. Uh, I had six operations on my eyes last year. And I'm legally blind, but I can, I can see. I just can't read or write. I'm suffering a condition, basically, that is macular degeneration. And I've become somewhat evangelical 
Well, first of all, I didn't want to give up in my life. So I've written seven books. I've invented a device for the visually challenged that's now um, uh, patent pending. We're going to find out in a number of months whether it's provided, you know, given a U.S. patent. And even in the last week, I wrote, uh, I've written a jingle for a, a prominent American company. So I'm still being creative. I'm not giving up. Uh, I've met the love of my life, and she's with me now. Um, and so it's been a very, a very critical period of my life. And the, the interesting thing that I found when I lost my vision, because I wasn't processing writing on the internet and and just the media mm-hmm. that's always in front of all of us, I kind of went in spiritually. And the net result was I kind of resolved my spiritual beliefs and desires and and my goals for the rest of my life. But interestingly, I began remembering with utter clarity my past lives. Now, I had had knowledge of those past lives even in early childhood. I would frequently dream about them. I would talk about them. And then I had past life regression in my early 30s. And I've had a number of relationships, for example, where I knew the woman in a previous life. Actually, four women I've been involved with, I've had previous relationships with. So I knew that reincarnation was real and not just a belief. But when I began to lose my mm-hmm. vision, I, I sort of was able to turn in so much that my, my spiritual history embodied in my past lives was kind of extrajected outward. And the net effect is my seventh book, is a, which I'm finishing right now, I've, I've done 18 of the planned 21 chapters, um, is mm-hmm. about my lives. And I, I believe that anybody that reads this book will understand the basic premise that I'm sharing with people is that, look, we don't have a soul. We are souls. And we live over and over and over again in multiple lives. I like to say, you know, Buckminster Fuller, one of my heroes and somebody I had the privilege of interviewing when I was 20 years old, back when Bucky was like 87, like mm-hmm. to say that day is an experiment. I'm popularizing the, the, the idea that, look, every lifetime is an experiment. There is absolutely no reason for any of us to condemn or put down any other soul on this planet, even when people are lost souls. And they're doing the wrong thing with their life. They're being cruel or committing atrocities or, you know, basically being inhumane in their activity. They're still going to ultimately be able to get past those mistakes and learn spiritually and ascend, which is where we're all headed. So, for example, as somebody who was uh, a U.S. astronaut that went to the planet Mars, when I began identifying who was telling the truth and who was lying about Mars, I made it clear on a recent interview that I did about those who've been making up their stories that, look, I'm not saying that these people are without virtue because everybody on this planet possesses virtue as a result of coming down here and dealing with this place. What these guys need to do was apparently create some um, publicity for themselves or experience being public speakers or whatever, and that was part of their spiritual plan for this life. That doesn't mean they went to Mars like some of us did. Uh, for those of us who went, that was part of our life plan was to was to go to another planet. So I hope and pray that when everybody understands that we are souls, 
and that these souls live over and over and over again before they ascend, that we'll all be nicer to each other. Uh, because that's really what we need to do aboard this, you know, spaceship Earth here is we, we need to create, you know, I really like the Dalai Lama because he once said, you know, my religion is kindness. I really think that's the mm-hmm. direction that we need to take civilization, such as you were, Jer, when you sent me uh, at your expense to Malaysia via China, uh, via Los Angeles, via Portland to get stem cell therapy for my vision problems back in 2018. That's what we need to be, is we need to be there for each other. We need to practice kindness. And so that was one of my prayers when I began to lose my vision, is that um, God would show me how to be more Christic and try to be able to reach out to others and, and, and begin promoting this idea that, look, we're, we're simply not being kind enough to each other. Um, there's yeah. still a tragedy going on on our planet. There's all this warfare that's terrible, particularly for families and for children. And we're simply not living up to our net potential as human beings. And, uh, you know, so that's, that's been pretty much my thinking as I battled the gradual loss of my perfect vision. I'm, you know, I'm, I, I can still see, but life mm-hmm. has become a lot more challenging because I have to use different methodologies to see correctly um right but yeah that was that's really been on my mind and the the weird thing that i'd like to report is like like i said when i um when i wasn't focusing on what was right in front of me being an absolute person who just devours internet content um like Mm -hmm. i used to devour television when i was younger i was really distracting myself from what my soul really knew about my former existences. And I, in, in the book, I prove a number of my past lives. It's not a belief reincarnation. I, I learned, for example, when I was nine years old, when I was regressed by a Department of Defense official when I was in Project Pegasus, 1970, mm-hmm. she told us that the U.S. government had proven the transmigration of the soul, and they wanted us to do one regression so that we would know when we were time traveling for the U.S. government that if we lost our lives doing those those time travel jumps, we shouldn't worry because we would be we would go back to heaven and then come back to a new life on Earth or another holographic planet like Earth. I don't believe, for example, right. that we always reincarnate into the same Earth. I think it may be simply another hologram. It- Exactly. I, I believe that too. And I think, you know, I, I definitely concur with you on that, Andy. You know, so she regressed me and I remembered being uh, a, an individual who was about 20 years old when he was um, asked to be the geometry professor at one of the New England colleges when it was founded. And mm. I believe that that college was Amherst. So I'm going to research the founding of Amherst and who was the first geometry hire uh, on that faculty. But anyway, she asked me, mm-hmm. Andy, who, who invited you to be this geometry professor? And I said, well, it was a man about 50 years old. And she said, okay, I'm going to take you deeper. You know, she's regressing me, right? And I'm talking as a regressed right. you know, kid. And right, 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 right. It was past lives, so at least a lot of them. I would dream about them and talk about them. I told my four older siblings, for example, that I was dog because in one of my recent past lives, I was the Swedish economist 
who became involved in the UN movement, uh, Doug Hammarskjöld, the author of the book Markings. And right. uh, yeah. took me in the regression, and she said, well, give me the name of this guy, Andy, who hired you as this geometry professor, right upon the founding of one of these early New England colleges. And I, I said out loud, Zephaniah. Well, the founder of Amherst was a gentleman born in, uh, around 1770, so he would have been like 51 years old, just as I had said, mm-hmm. upon the founding of Amherst College in Amherst, Massachusetts in 1821. Right. Um, he left Dartmouth with about, I think, uh, several faculty members and like 15 students, and he founded Amherst. Well, his name was Zephaniah Swift Moore. Now, how many kids growing up in New Jersey, born in eighteen, or excuse me, in nineteen sixty-one, are going to know the name Zephaniah? So these are the kind of proofs. <laughs> not many. Presenting in my book, you know, so people would say, I can say to people, look, you may choose not to believe reincarnation, but how did I come up with the name Zephaniah as a nine-year-old in nineteen seventy in New Jersey? Nobody was named Zephaniah in New Jersey in nineteen seventy. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. I've established multiple, you know, in one of my Indian lives, my lives in India, in Madras before the mm-hmm. Raj, I came up with the name of a rare musical instrument. And then when I was going up to Seattle to take the Washington Bar exam that I passed uh, in July of 96, I was telling this Sikh uh, taxi cab driver, I could see he was from India. So I started telling him this story about this life in India. And I mentioned this particular musical instrument. I want to save it for the book. And he said to me, he actually stopped his taxi uh, on the 405 interchange on the way over to the Meidenbauer Center there in Seattle, in Bellevue. And he said, young man, you're making the hair stand up on the back of my neck, because not only was there such a musical instrument of that name, and, and not only was it popular in Madras before the Raj, but in the late 1970s, I and a small group of Indian and British friends then living in London started a small international musical heritage society to to revive the playing of that musical instrument. And when you were telling me your past life story regarding that instrument, you didn't know that you were talking to one of the few individuals in this world of 7 billion human beings who is an expert on that instrument. And he said, I take this as proof of past lives. I can't say any other way that you knew the name of this instrument, because even when we began playing it in, in Hyde Park in London, we couldn't get the Times of London to even write a paragraph about our, 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 our small musical heritage society. And he goes, I know to a personal certainty that no information about that instrument has ever reached America. So how do you know about it? So, so these are the kind of proofs I present in the book, and I, I just want everybody to realize that, look, we are souls. That's what we are. And we come into life after life to learn. So you can't put anybody down for their choice making because every lifetime is an experiment. It's an attempt to take another spin of the apple, another spin of the bottle to learn. That's what it's all about. And I, and, and, and I want to really um, emphasize as the 280th American to, to earn a, a degree at Magdalen College, Cambridge, since it was founded in the year 1428, that I'm going to become quite evangelical about the fact that we need to basically put religion, science, and philosophy aside and embrace experientialism, because experience is ultimately what matters. It's what changes us. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So um, 
that's kind of what I I felt compelled to do since I had my vision problem. Okay, in this lifetime, I'm experiencing vision problems. I won't always, and I remember lifetimes when I didn't experience vision problems. When I was a small kid in this life, I was called eagle-eyes by my family because I used to be able to see people walking on mountaintops when we were in our car on a camping trip. And I know Mm -hmm. from the memories I have of multiple past lives that I was not even legally blind in those lives. So I believe that when I go back to the bed and my spirit is put in a new body and I'm dropped into a new mother as, um, what was his name? Um, The individual who wrote, Khalil Gibran, who wrote uh, The Prophet, you know, another woman shall bear me. That's how he ends The Prophet, right? And another woman shall bear me. I've never thought of a more enlightened writer from this country than Khalil Gibran and that book, The Prophet. I would recommend it to all of your listeners. It's a wonderful, short, little, sweet, little classic uh, book. But so when I go back. You know, I was. I was forced to read that when I was a child, just, you know, when I was like nine, I was forced to read The Prophet by uh, Khalil Gibran. So I, I loved it at nine. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Book. And I also would recommend Dog Hammarskjöld's Markings, by the way. That's another another really good book. But um, so um, I know that when I leave this body and I go back to the Godhead, I'm my life is going to be reviewed. We're going to, I'm going to talk about it with spirit guides what I learned, what I failed to learn, what I've done to qualify for ascension, what I haven't mastered for ascension. And they're going to put me back in another mother and I'm going to be born in another situation and start life over again because I remember doing that. And I talked about all sorts of lives when I was a kid that I had no knowledge of as a, you know, an ethnic uh, hybrid growing up in New Jersey in the 60s. I had I was talking about places that I had should have had no knowledge of in China and in India and right. in England and Spain. And I was a Native American chief in the upper Midwest. I've even identified my name and I found him. His name was Chief Big Otter. And the first time I opened Big up Otter. a book. Yeah, Big Otter. That, that was my, mm-hmm. my name in the upper Midwest. I, I think I was probably right. in a way, but I'm not sure. Um, interestingly, my fiance is a quarter Ojibwe and a quarter Cherokee. So there are these kind of returns of certain patterns that relate to our past lives in any particular life. Um, but the first time I opened up a, a large book, I was in an airport and I opened up uh, a large, like one and a half inch volume book, you know, thick book about Native American literature. And the first page I opened up to was about Big Otter, literally the person that I was in a former life. So I'm really becoming evangelical about the need to to have people understand that we are souls and that reincarnation is not a belief or a myth or an interesting idea in the paranormal. The U.S. government told me that it had proven the transmigration of the soul and the reality of reincarnation when I was a kid in Project Pegasus in 1970. And I've been interested ever since, ever since that, that first regression when I, um, I was hired by Zephaniah Swift-Moore as one of the first uh, professors at, at Amherst. Uh, I have been unable to find any other person named Zephaniah, and he, did, he was around 50 when he founded Amherst, which is what I had said to the regressionist. 
He's about 50, and it's about 1820. It was right on target. You know, you know, Andy, you know, you're hitting all the notes that resonate with me because, you know, it drives me absolutely crazy when people they come from just the mental mind for example you know oh there's no way that andrew basiago went to mars you know they're all stuck in their head i mean everything that you've said from you know years ago till even now speaks the truth because you experienced it there's no other replacement than experiential knowledge versus something you were taught. Would you agree on that, Andy? Like experience yes, is everything? And, and, and that's what I've done. My methodology has, as an experientialist has been to study my experience, remember it, write it down. The seven books that I've written while legally blind are about my experience. In fact, with the seventh one, I'll be done with all, all the books I'll be writing about my experience that I have to, you know, write, write the book afresh as it were. Um, I'm going right. to be getting my other books from other sources of material that I've developed over the years. But um, that's all I've done. People need to understand that, look, the reason that I'm sometimes not believed is because of official state secrecy. They have not been told the truth about what our own government has done. Now, they didn't tell them the truth that they developed time travel, which is what Project Pegasus achieved, and they didn't tell them that they were going to Mars which is something that Project Mars was achieving under a still quite alive Howard Robard Hughes. Now, let's think about this. Mm. William Whitecrow and I talked about how we met Howard Hughes at the 999 North Sepulveda uh, building uh, of the West Coast Jump Room to Mars. Now, That's near LAX, a, right? Huh? The one That's right near south, LAX, right? right it, it's right south of... Uh, Imperial Avenue, east and west, right immediately south of the Los Angeles International Airport, LAX. Now, the individual who has yeah. proven the claim that William Whitecrow and I made about um, about Howard Hughes being the director of the Mars Jump Room program, and that we had contact with Hughes in 1980 when he supposedly died as that mess of a human being back in 1976, that was Major mm -hmm. General. The, the, the individuals who wrote that book boxes the secret life of Howard Hughes and established that Howard Hughes actually lived until 2001, in his early 90s, and that that story in 1976 right. was made up to because he was involved in sensitive defense technical projects for the CIA, including the Mars Jump Room Program and the Glomar Explorer, which was that submersible that was going to pick a a Soviet submarine off the floor of the Pacific Ocean. Okay, the individuals who wrote that right. book were not just nobodies. They were a retired major general for the U.S. Air Force, who's now become a very good friend of mine, Mark Music, and his colleague, Douglas Wellman, who was the former dean of students at USC, University of Southern California. You know, I, 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 I sure. dare say retired major general from the Air Force is a good individual to prove that Howard Hughes lived on until 2001. And that's what Mark and Doug do in their <laughs> book, Boxes. So people have right. to understand that all I've done is talked about my experiences, about two projects that I was in that the American people were not told about because they, they conferred right. incredible advantage against the two major threats, which were, from the point of view of the U.S. government, were the Reds and the Grays. 
basically the Soviet and Chinese communists and other communist governments around the world. And the extraterrestrials that they knew had been visiting us by the time of the Roswell crash of July 7th of 1947. My own father was brought into the ET project in October of 1952, a couple months after the, the famous July 1952 overflight of our nation's capital by nine UFOs clocked by Langley Air Force Base in Virginia as flying at 7,000 miles per hour. Those UFOs were also seen to appear and disappear in the sky. And my dad was right. ordered to report in October of 1952 by the military to Curtis Wright in Woodridge, New Jersey, to work on the ramjet. My dad designed the metal alloy by which the ramjet was built so that it wouldn't, its fuselage and engines would not melt from friction with molecules of air in our atmosphere and molecules of space dust outside our atmosphere. So I'm from Do you remember what a, that alloy was? Huh? Andy, what was, what was that alloy? Do you remember what that alloy was? No, but it might it might be discoverable now that President Trump has been declassifying. You know, he de he declassified 5,300 U.S. patents. And right there, Correct. there's another example yep. what the American people don't understand. How many Americans, even lawyers, American attorneys, know that the U.S. government confers secret patents? One of my freshman uh, classmates, I won't say his name, but it can, I can give it to somebody off, off the air tonight. One of my friends and neighbors at Muir College UC San Diego in 1979-80, which was my first year of college, my first year at UC San Diego, and then I transferred to UCLA to finish out. I connected right. up around the year 2000-2001, about 20 years after I knew him at UC San Diego, and he confirmed for me that he had been conferred secret math patents. Now, for anybody who doesn't believe my time travel and Mars experiences, I would just submit that. Do you know that the U.S. government has given people secret math patents? Patents are supposed to be to popularize information, not make them secret. And yet our government exactly. has some patents. Right. And I, I think President I'm Trump has shown his colors as somebody who wanted to bring about the truth, because unlike the last several mm -hmm. presidents before whom said they wanted to embody the truth but didn't do anything to advance the truth movement, President Trump helped advance the truth movement by declassifying 5,300 secret patents. So if you don't believe time travel was achieved by Project Pegasus, if you don't believe we've been to Mars, that's, that's your problem. Because I'm t I've been telling the truth since I've been talking about this since 2004 when I did my first yep. conference and 2008 when I did my first radio show. And I'm not... I've never been saying that I'm anybody special as a result of serving these, but I did serve. I've served my country. And, you know, I run for president in 2016, right. and people falsely accuse me of atrocities. And that kind of goes to the epistemological dilemma of our society. And I think we've seen it in terms of the COVID-19 uh, conspiracy theories that have been launched in the wake of this pandemic. Look, I've lived an honorable right. life. I've been honorable in all things. I did right by my family, my church, my school, my neighborhood, my government. And I started working for our government when I was six years old. That's when I became the first American child to teleport. Not the first child, because there was about 20, 25 kids 
from Latin America that were brought up and used as experimentees. And I've talked about that because it was a, it was wrong. Right. But I was the first American child right. to teleport. In that capacity, I went back via chronovisor, and I was the American who advised General George Washington to retreat his troops from New York Harbor. Those are true stories. That's right. I was the first person to time travel from the present to the past to be captured in a photograph. That was the picture of me at Gettysburg on November 19th, right. 1863, in the so-called Josephine Cobb image of Lincoln at Gettysburg. That is me in the picture. And in fact, I proved right. that it was me because I described in multiple uh, radio shows and conferences that I was fading from view when that photograph was taken. And then two photo editors, John Gannon and William Brett Stillings, one of my Mars fellow Mars astronaut friends, uh, they examined the, that photograph of that child in that famous picture, the one where Lincoln can be seen, you know, in the back on the dais in the back of the photograph. And right, my right. phone and my eye socket are visible in that photograph. Now, that's no known Civil War photograph defect. There was misting and blurring of people when they would walk when the, the old cameras were developing the photograph. But there was no seeing into right. the body of the person being photographed. So these are the kind of proofs I have offered and I have offered for years of my claim, so that those who say, oh, I don't know, I still don't believe this guy, just say, believe you what you want, because people can ultimately believe whatever the hell they want, but that, but, but have, right. you know, have the opportunity to believe and be wrong, because I long ago proved my claims about uh, Project Pegasus and the fact that we were time traveling, and I did it with physical evidence. In the case of Mars, I brought forward four of my colleagues. William B. Stillings, Bernard Mendez, William Whitecrow, who passed away in 2018, and uh, Ken Johnston Sr. Those right. weren't just other people who went. Those were people that I was <coughs> excuse, trained with and that I was on the surface of Mars with. And I brought them forward. That was the first time in the history of, of truth-telling, of, of, of whistleblowing, that somebody brought forward Four other experiencers of the same thing. Did Jeffrey Wygon remember that. bring four other uh, uh, four other uh, employees of Benson and Hedges or whatever his uh, tobacco company was when he came forward and revealed that that the tobacco companies knew that cigarettes caused cancer? No, he he came forward himself. So I was the first right. whistleblower to bring forward four other individuals to say, "Hey, this guy's telling the truth. I was on Mars with him." Okay. So right. that's really where we're at. I long ago proved my time travel claims, and I long ago corroborated my claims with the claims of other people who went and could talk about what it was like at length and do so accurately. So we, we, we really need to understand more about the law of evidence in this country, to understand what a mere assertion is. Like you know, A mere assertion is if I say, I have been to Moscow. But if I bring a Russian friend into court and that Russian friend says, Mr. Bashago is telling the truth because I introduced him to my mother at her dasha outside Moscow, and here's my, right. here's my Russian passport, that's no longer mere, a mere allegation. That's corroboration. So I have corroborated right. my major claims, and I'm now doing so a third time with my, my past life 
memories that I've been proving. So that's the key thing we've needed to do all along with COVID-19 is not just listen to mere allegations, but say, okay, what's your proof? And how does it fall together? And what is your experience? What, what is your experience? You know, if you say the Chinese did it or the Americans did it, it, it was invented in the lab versus it's escaped out of some restaurant or something. What is your experience that reveals that? So, so what do you think, Andy, l- l- while we're on this topic? What, what do you think or what do you feel or what do you experience to be true was going on with this whole COVID-19 pandemic? Well, first of all, craziness. my brother's a good physician, so I knew that it was a real pandemic. I believed following the news that President Trump and Vice President Pence did two very important things. The first thing they did is they blocked access to the to the areas of the world that were really seriously having an outbreak of, of a very real and serious pandemic, and that was China and Europe. That was a critical decision because you know, they've limited the deaths from COVID-19. It's a lot. And it's sad, and I certainly extend my condolences to anybody who's lost a friend or loved one or family member from it. But we ended up losing thus far about 97,500 Americans based on about a million, a million point one, a million point two infected. So we've lost a little bit more than we lose from influenza A and B every year, which is about 80,000 Americans Right. out of a million or more infected. That's a lot, and that's too many, and even one death diminishes all of us uh, here right. in, in this time, but uh, it could have been much, much worse, and it was being predicted as going to be much, much worse. So the second thing was the, was the social distancing, the masks, and all of that. So I view the COVID-19 outbreak as a success of a high order by the United States. Because if we had had, if we had had the um, the die-off rate that China and, for example, Spain and Italy had, we would have been devastated. Right. We would have had less than we had combat fatalities in World War II. We had about four hundred forty thousand combat fatalities in World War II. So we ended up having twenty-five percent of those mortalities in the first year or two of COVID nineteen we could have had 10 times the number. It was possible that we could have had four to 14 million or so deaths from this. So we would have had a a greater die-off than we had combat fatalities during the four years of uh, World War II from 1941 to 45, when about 16 million Americans out of 140 about 11% of our population was serving in the war in both the European and Pacific theaters, and about 440,000 lost their lives. So we would have had a huge die-off compared to the, to the social trauma of World War II. It would have been just the unprecedented disaster in the history of our country. But because of those two very important and responsible decisions made by our president and vice president, to cut off access from people from China and Europe, and not just Spain and Italy, but most European countries, and to engage in the social distancing. This has been an unprecedented success by government. And I know 
that it was a real crisis because, as I said, my own brother, who I've known since I, I was born, he's 19 months older, he's a great person and a great physician. I've known him since I popped out of my mother. He greeted me when she took me home. I know my brother right. like I know everybody. He's, he's 60. I'm going to be 59 in September, you know, 19 months apart. And um, he turned uh, 60 in, in, uh, in, uh, in February of this year. And I, I, you, you know and, somebody like you know, and, and so I know and, that it was a real pandemic. He, Andy, give me two seconds. We're just going to pause for for two seconds. Um, okay. Just give me two seconds, okay? We're gonna we're just we're gonna pause, okay? All right, we're back. We're we're gonna edit this, okay? All right, let's continue. Keep going. Okay, so because of official state secrecy, <clears throat> you know, the internet was created by the Department of Defense, and then it became the blogosphere. Epistemology is the study of the theory of knowledge, and we are in an epistemological crisis as a country, mm -hmm. and the COVID-19 crisis right. really revealed it. And that is that people aren't sharing their experience. They're not getting corroboration for their experience. They're making mere assertions. Correct. Mere assertions are often based on paranoid assertions Paranoid mere assertions they have heard others say. Now, that was the source of the false claims made against me, despite the fact that I've lived not just an honorable life, but a meritorious life as an American. Sure. I'm not boasting. I'm just trying to contextualize what's happened in my life. Um, no, I get it. I get it. Uh, yeah. People just made things up about me that have caused me to lose conference bookings or caused other people to repeat the statements. And, you know, another candidate in 2016 who got a similar treatment was uh, Hillary Rodham Clinton. Now, I happen to know something about Hillary, and that was based on experience. And that was when I was seven years old, my family stopped at a public campground in the state of Maine in August of 1969. I was almost eight years old. Hillary was right. 21, and she would turn 22 uh, that October because she was born, what, in October of 47, right? So right, she right. was with two of her girlfriends from uh, Wellesley College, which she had just graduated from. And by the way, she had made Life magazine with her, um, her speech that she gave to the commencement, uh, the commencement address she gave to her graduating class at Wellesley. So anyway, she was with mm -hmm. Chris Olson, who would become Chris Olson Rogers when she married Jeff Rogers, the son of Secretary of State William P. Rogers. And I know Chris because she was the dean of students and my crim law professor at Lewis and Clark uh, Law School in Portland, Oregon, 19 years later. I entered in 1988, right. 19 years after this meeting with uh, Hillary and Chris Olson and their friend Martha. I think it was probably the Wellesley graduate Martha Teichner who became a distinguished foreign correspondent for CBS News. Three very hmm. remarkable American women. One would go on right. and be First Lady of Arkansas and then First Lady of the United States, Senator from New York, Secretary of State, and then the first American woman to get a major party nomination for president. That was Hillary Rodham. Her friend Chris Olson, the Clintons would appoint as U.S. Attorney for Oregon after she served as Dean of Students for Lewis and Clark College and, and, and for the City Attorney's Office there in Portland. 
And of course, we know what Martha Teichner has done with her career at CBS News. So three really remarkable American women. Now, I remember what happened when I met Hillary and the two other girls. This was August of 16, which you may recall was the month that Neil, Neil Diamond filmed his album, Hot August Night. It was scorching okay. heat, particularly on the East Coast. And so we stopped okay. at this public ground in the state of Maine, right over the Maine border. And my dad would always give me this, this five-gallon plastic jug to fill up with water. Now, what, right. what is five gallons? Like 41.12 ounces or something? 41 pounds, 12 ounces? I was all of like 50 right. pounds, right? I wasn't even in the third grade yet. I had just completed second grade in New Jersey. So my dad sends me down right. to the water spit in this public campground in Maine, which was really just, it was really just a glorified patch of crabgrass with a spigot and some places you could pitch your tent and a bathroom. Right. <laughs> uh, so when I went down and to fill up this five gallon jug, Hillary and Chris and Martha were washing their hair. And it reminded me of the Three Fates, which was on a book that my mom had of fables, as they were, you know, washing right. and cleaning their their hair because, like, you know, it was a hot day, and I guess they wanted to shampoo their hair. And so, as I, as all of a fifty pound, you know, fifty pound in weight, uh, you know, just recent second grader, walked down to the spigot, none other than Hillary right. Rodham, who would right. of course become Hillary Rodham Clinton, said, "How old are you?" And I said, seven. And she said, how much do you weigh? And I said, 50. And she said, um, she said to the girls, look at this child. He has the face of an angel, a Botticelli angel. I remember that. But then she said, who asked you to, to get this water? And I said, my dad. And she said, your dad asked you to? God, that must be hard for you to carry. In other words, when I met Hillary Clinton in 1969, she cared about a kid who weighed 50 pounds who had been sent by his father to get 41.12, 41 pounds, 12 ounces of water in that jug. Almost the, right. his own weight. Because I had to you know, drag it back to the campsite. But that was a chore that I had when we were camping. My dad was trying to build character. My point is that sure. Hillary would then go on to found the Children's Defense Fund. So do I believe all the stories about Hillary Clinton committing atrocities? No, I can't. Because my, my experience teaches me that when I met her when I was seven and she was 21, she cared about the fact that at 50 pounds, I was being asked to get 41, point, 41 pounds, 12 ounces of water and carry them back to my campsite. I don't see that as a person who goes on at age in their 40s, 50s, or 60s to become some kind of serial killer or 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 whatever the, the other things that she's right. been accusing. So I, I think this is an example to show you that, look, isn't that the way we make judgments about all people from our best friend to our last taxi cab driver? We're always evaluating people based on our experience. So if you want to correct, uh, if you use somebody like Hillary or myself or others who have ran, run for president at the risk of our lives, whether we've committed atrocities, why don't you ask people who know them? Does it, do any people spreading these conspiracy theories, do they ever ask those who know? No. They just recycle mere assertions. And this has, re, the, the, I, I believe that the COVID-19 crisis 
and the way it was handled by the American people in the blogosphere is an object lesson in the fact that we need to begin doing this. We need to challenge people and say, okay, what is your experience? Not just who you right. talk to, your assertion. What is your experience? Now, regarding the virus itself, I when I went to China in June of 2018, under your auspices, and I thank you mightily for that kindness you showed me um, by sending that. me there to stem cell treatment for my eyes. Um, when I was at the Guangzhou, China um, airport, and that's a city of what? In, in 2017, the population of Guangzhou, China was 14.5 million. Mm -hmm. When I went to the restroom, whether I had to go number one or number two, I had to use a porcelain slit in the ground. There were no commodes at the Guangzhou, China airport, a city of 14.5 million. And then when I was told the next plane was going to come, it was in to get to Malaysia, it was in 12 hours. And they asked me to go out into the Chinese countryside, even though I didn't speak Chinese, and they confirmed that the individuals I might be dealing with to get back to the airport might not speak English. And I thought, I'm not going missing in China. I don't speak Mandarin. You know, so when we look at what started the COVID-19 crisis in or pandemic in China, we have to look at the fact that China is a second world country aspiring to first world status, but still tolerating third world conditions. That's the reality. That's right. what my experience taught me when I went to China. I was standing Got in it. the urine of their men to relieve, to alleviate to relieve myself by going number one when I was in China. That's not acceptable. How can the World Health Organization say, well, we're, we're faulting China for this um, pandemic? What was, the, what was who doing? What was the World Health Organization doing to just make sure that when world travelers were going through Chinese airports, they weren't catching <clears throat> pandemic or epidemic infections? Just right. going to the bathroom. When the conditions at some Chinese you. airports are still at the, a third world level of development. That's the issue I think we should focus on. If, as has been said, I don't know if it's true, that COVID-19 could have come from a bat that was for sale as a foodstuff at a Chinese airport, we have to confront the Chinese and say, look, we don't want you anymore eating any bats, cats, dogs, or the other <laughs> things that you're still eating. You know, I love dogs. I'm, I'm allergic to cats, so I don't I don't hang out with them. But I love dogs, and they love me. I find it horrifying. Yeah, me too. I've been skinning them alive and eating them. I know, skinning me too. And then eating them. That's not appropriate for man's best friend. And I don't think it's proper with a cat either. Because cats are very yeah. ethical creatures, and they make many people happy. And they provide a lot of comfort right. to them, really, just to sit in their lap and lap and pet them. So in other words, I think that the original belief that COVID-19 may have been spread from bats to Chinese individuals at different markets in China is probably what happened. I don't think that this was a form of asymmetrical warfare by the Chinese. And I don't believe the stories that the United States military, uh, you know, started this because I just know too many military people. And they're good people. I mean, m most people haven't even mm -hmm. met uh, U.S. military, you know, U.S. admirals and generals. I have. 
there were there was an army captain protecting my life the whole time I was on Pegasus. People don't understand right. that military, since we became a modern military during and after World War One, a lot of our military leaders are fine people. Think of like uh, General David right. Jones, of course, he could have been president. Okay, in other words, we've been putting quality people in the top positions in the four branches of service to prevent war, especially to prevent accidental nuclear war. That's why Project Pegasus existed, to achieve survival and peace in the nuclear age. And people are making up all sorts of conspiracy theories like it was to control all of us to have access to the future. And I've said no. Its principal purpose was survival and peace in the nuclear age. The individual who ran Project Pegasus was Harold Agnew. Who was he? Well, out of those 11% of of, of 140 million Americans at the time, about 16 million Americans, the one American to be asked to take the nuclear trigger from Los Alamos, New Mexico, to the island of Tinian so that it could be put aboard the the atomic bomb that was dropped by the Enola Gay on on Hiroshima, Japan, was none other than Harold M. Agnew. I knew Dr. Agnew. Okay, every time he went past me in the hallway at at Los Alamos when I was a kid on Pegasus, he used to poke me in the belly button. Okay, we knew Harold Agnew. We would go to lunch and dinner with him. Okay, that's who our government had direct the time travel program. Isn't that consistent corroboration that the very person they used to bring the nuclear trigger from Los Alamos to Tinian was the person I've identified as the head of the time travel program? Of course, you'd have to go to an American I mean, that sense. because of right. the danger that time travel would hold. So anyway, this this is what I've become very, very exercised about is that, look, this is a great country and we do not want to continue to practice what Richard Hofstadter called the paranoid style of American politics. That's what we've been doing. And when the COVID-19 crisis exactly. broke out, everybody was doing that. And it was a pandemic of of disinformation alongside exactly. an And that's what we have to be mindful of. We can't allow our country to fall apart in terms of its epistemological reasoning when we're challenged by an actual crisis as serious as COVID-19. So that that's really yeah. what I wanted to share with your listeners tonight is, look, I mean, I heard all kinds of conspiracy theories that Trump had started <laughs> it, that, you know, it was, it was started at... Uh, Fort Detrick, Maryland. It was started by the Chinese right. in in Wuhan. Did you, hear, did you hear the one about? Did you hear the one about the the Harvard professor? Something like that. Yeah, you know, don't we have an international scientific community? I mean, my first hire as a writer, I was hired by Captain Jacques Cousteau. He was French. You know, mm-hmm. we, we've had we've had an international scientific community for. A century or more. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, m- many of the things developed by a, a, a Polish woman married to a, a Frenchman, namely Marie Curie, became, mm-hmm. were adopted by our, our great country in our, in, our, in our, you know, nuclear program. So we've had an international scientific community for over 100 years. Is it that unusual that a Harvard professor would be talking to a Chinese lab? No. You know, at UCLA, I worked uh, as an editorial uh, assistant for the Department of Pharmacology, 
virtually the whole department was British, you know, and it was a UCLA, you know, Center for Health Science um, department. That's right. the nature of science. The nature of science is it's an international enterprise, and we're lucky that it is because that allows things to, you know, medications and, and prophylaxis for certain illnesses, certain diseases to, to be cured quicker because you, you, you bring together all the people from around the world who have knowledge. And are the Chinese not a, a brilliant people? Of course they are. They're a 6,000-year-old culture. They're brilliant. I've right. had, I mean, I had a, a Chinese girlfriend in law school who was, I basically taught English while we were in law school. Okay, so oh, is that right? Chinese, and I have a great deal of affection and respect for the Chinese, not only because I almost married a Chinese woman, but I've had many Chinese and Chinese American friends over the years, and they're among the most brilliant, ethical individuals that I've known. So, does my experience teach me that the Chinese would invent a pandemic to kill millions of people in the world? My experience does not teach me that. My experience teaches me right. that there's been there's been a, a, a historical pattern of attacking the Chinese, known as the Yellow Peril. But my experience has yeah. taught me that Chinese people are sensitive people, that they're they have a, 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 a in lar at large a, a brilliant population in terms of intelligence, and that they're caring and ethical people. Now, are there I mean, problems? You, you met. You met Dr. Michelle, right? She's Chinese Malay. I mean, she's primarily Chinese. I mean, I mean, she was a wonderful woman, or she is a yes. wonderful woman. Wouldn't you agree? Great example. Dr. So Michelle Chan, Malaysian ancestry, yeah. gave me free uh, stem cell treat treatment to save my eyes. What could be nicer? Okay, so my right. experience tells me that China is a great country, that the Chinese people are a great people, and that they're characterized by sensitivity, ethicality, and intelligence. So when I started hearing all this berating of China and this notion that the Chinese government had spread this pandemic, I thought, well, wait a minute. It could have spread from a bat to a person because the Chinese eat a very diverse diet, largely because they have such a large population that they have to. Um, right, we have right. to work China to feed the Chinese people. Do you know that the United States of America has enough agricultural potential to feed the entire world plus 5%. We could be I shipping... I did not know that. This country could be shipping food all over the world, including food to Hawaii, which has been left out of our prosperity, to China, right. which still needs help on food. You know, the Chinese have begun, for example, buying our Washington State apples. I'm, of course, I'm aware of that as a, as a 25-year lawyer from Washington State. So... Um, I just did not believe the beratement of China that was occurring. And I was talking about it to my friends saying, look, I'm not buying it. I do not believe that even though there are things that are going on in China that we do not approve of, the Chinese government still oppresses dissidents. They are still engaging in um, the use of the death penalty and things that most mm -hmm. other countries have put behind them. And there's much to achieve on the level of hygiene in China and bring it from a third world to a first world level of hygiene. I do not believe that this pandemic was spread to the world by China or by the United States. That's what, not what we're wow. about. <clears throat> so what I realized was that people were just recycling rumors. 
And rumor mongering is not <laughs> the truth. Agreed. Agreed, Andy. You know, I, I'm with you, you know, 100%. If we're going to have a truth movement, we also have to attack falsity. You know, I've been criticized for, for commenting about those I don't believe who've been talking about going to Mars. Well, wait a minute. If we're going to learn about the truth about those who went, don't we have to talk about those who are making up their accounts of going? I mean, we didn't let that guy. <laughs> exactly. Uh, remember when Frank Shorter was finishing the Olympic decathlon or the Olympic uh, marathon in 1972 in Munich, and that guy ran in that right. head of. I forget his name. His name is eminently forgettable, isn't it? That 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 yeah. uh, best German guy put on a uniform and ran in through the through the uh, right. Of the right. He acted like into the, was winning yeah, the marathon. Yeah, yeah. Do we all give right. him credit to this day rather than Frank Shorter for winning the, the, the gold medal in marathon in 72 and the, the silver medal from the marathon in 76 in Montreal? No, the, the records show that no. Frank Shorter did. That's because we didn't tolerate that, that idiot who ran in, in front of Frank. Okay. And do you remember right. what uh, Eric Siegel, a professor of Frank's at Yale, was yelling? as that guy was running in ahead of him and he knew he was an imposter, he was yelling, he's an imposter, Frank, he's an imposter, keep running, you've won the marathon, right? Eric Siegel was yeah, beside yeah, him. Yeah. Well, who has been beside themselves like Eric Siegel when I and William Stillings and Bernard Mendez and William Whitecrow and Ken Johnston Sr. came forward talking about how we went to Mars for this great country and there have been people making up their stories about... Uh, going to Mars. Has anybody been calling well, them? No. Exactly. Like who, who, who in particular are you referring to, Andy? <laughs> I know. What, what, uh, I know that Michael McIntosh and Max Spears were never on Mars like they've claimed because they both, well, they both claimed that they met me on Mars when they were kids. Well, they were six years right. old when I went to Mars as a 19-year-old, okay? Now, the youngest American, the youngest Earthling that I was on the surface of Mars with was William Brett Stillings, who was trained when he was 13 and was on the surface mm -hmm. of Mars age 14, having been born in, um, Brett was born on December 22nd of 1966, okay? Brett is an American hero for doing that. Not only for going to Mars, but for going at such a young age, and then for having the courage to tell the truth about having gone. So he's a hero three ways in my book. I right. know he was the youngest human being from Earth that I had contact with on Mars. I did have, I did walk past some of the children of the indigenous Martians that we call Homo Martis Martis. They're sort of smaller and spindlier mm -hmm. and elfin ears. Uh, they look sort of Tibetan. Um, kids were very really? cute. Yeah, they look sort of Tibetan. Um, so I had contact with the Homo Martis Terrace and the Homo Martis Martis, but I did not have contact with any Earthling younger than age fourteen, which was William Stillings. I was trained with him when he was four, when he was thirteen, and I was on the surface with him numerous times when he was fourteen years old, because he and I first went up there right. in July of nineteen eighty one. Oh, I think Brett might have gone a, a month after me, but in, sometime in summer of 81, he went up. And I know I went up in early July of 81. Okay, so I know that Max Pierce and Michael McIntosh were making up their account of having gone to Mars and had contact with me there because they were too young. I didn't have contact. Now, in addition, Michael McIntosh claimed 
that I used my photo flash gun to save his life from a predator. Well, there was another problem. I did have a photo flash gun that could incinerate a small creature at about 100 feet, or even a humanoid, that I always kept tucked into the left side of my belt. But I only took Mm -hmm. it out of my belt and fired it on the surface of Mars once, and that was to break open a rock at the um, urging of William Stillings. And when I did, Courtney Hunt, who was the team leader of the, the three of us, or the two of us, you know, and Courtney, right. Courtney um, chastised me for discharging my photo flash gun for a non-critical purpose. I was supposed to save it to protect all of us from predators if they attacked us. At the same time, the CIA was, so, you know, let me just say this about what people don't understand about the CIA. The CIA was so ethical in the way it was structured that we were given specialized ethical training that if we wanted to sacrifice our lives rather than fire our photo flash guns on the surf, those of us who had them on the surface of Mars to kill a Martian humanoid or animal, we could do so mm-hmm. so as not to kill a life form on another planet with the attendant risk that we would start an interplanetary war. We were free to sacrifice ourselves. Okay. And I was always wow. carrying a small little cyanide capsule in a plastic sheath inside my pocket whenever I was on Mars to, uh, to do so. Wow. Thank God I never had to, mm. but I know that I only discharged yeah, thank God, that right? once I discharged it to break open a rock. When I did some water bubbled from the surface, I talk about this in my upcoming memoir uh, about my Mars experiences. Mm. Okay. So when Michael McIntosh claims that I fired my photo flash gun to protect him from a predator, it cannot be true. So in the case of Max Spears and Michael McIntosh, I know they've been making up their stories. I'm virtually certain, that, but not 100% certain, that Randy Kramer and Corey Good have also been making up their accounts. Of course, right. Randy has originally claimed that the name of his wife on Mars was Deirdre. Recently, when I interviewed him on The Martian Revelation with Gary Legere, you know, who goes by the handle Mad Martian, he claimed right. that the name of on Mars was Doris. Well, wait a minute. Does any man who's of sound mind ever forget the name of a wife? I mean, this, this is <laughs> exactly. evident. <laughs> you don't forget the name of a woman you marry, ever. No, I've talked no. to 90 to 100 yeah. all clients, and they've been able to cite for me the, name, the, the whole names of their brides when they were 16 years old, even though they're 96 or 106, okay? Um, so when, when Randy stated that, um, when he couldn't remember who he served with on Mars, even though he had told Dr. Michael Sala four years before I interviewed him that he had a wife on Mars, I questioned Randy Kramer at the, uh, UFO, um, the UFO conference, uh, and paranormal symposium in Yelm, Washington, and he couldn't name a single person he had served on Mars with. I then interviewed the woman who was divorcing him, Andrea, who told me that he was lying, that he had been a bartender in San Francisco the whole time he said he was on Mars, and that he had only heard my account (laughs) of William Stillings, Bernard Mendez, William White Crow, and Ken Johnston Sr., and he thought, well, I can tell this story, and he decided to pick up our story and begin making up his own account. So I do not believe Randy Kramer, and I've I've challenged him to, to what he's gotten wrong really asking him to, to come forward and admit that he's made up his, his ex- Mars experiences. In the case of Corey Goo, 
good. I think it's possible that Corey has been an experiencer of extraterrestrial contact, but I know that some of his claims were just beyond belief. Like he claimed that in order to meet with his handler, Gonzalez, which was curious because I had described a handler that I had had named Garcia, but beyond that, right. uh, when, when he stated that he met his handler, Corey Good stated that it was in the Kuiper Belt. Well, the last time I met my Mars handler, Courtney Hunt, was at Abe's Deli in Northridge, California. I didn't have to go to the Kuiper Belt not to be overheard. Because if you're ever at Abe's Deli in Northridge, California, you might recall that there were high back seats that at, at lunchtime you couldn't hear what anybody was saying at the, in the booth right next to you. Okay, so mm-hmm. you don't have to go to the Kuiper Belt to meet a handler, okay? Then, of course, uh, Jay Widener, technical producer for Corey Good on Gaia TV, came forward in a five or six part interview with um, Yvonne DiCarlo, who uses the name Groovy Bean, and basically stated that that uh, Corey has been making stuff up. So it, when you're doing a TV show and your own producer comes forward and says you've been making stuff up, I think that's pretty wow. dis- of the fact that you're not telling the truth. So. Those are yeah. the four that, you know, two that I know have been making up their stories and two others that I believe have been making up their stories. But I don't know. To so what do you positive. think? Andy, what do you think of this whole Elon Musk thing with going to Mars? What, what are your thoughts on that? You know, this whole, you know, signing up to go to Mars astronaut program. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I published my landmark paper, The Discovery of Life on Mars, which was the first paper to show uh, humanoid and animal life forms on another planet. And then I came forward about my Mars experiences a year later in 2009. I published that in 2008, uh, about December of 2008, the paper. And then I came forward at a, a conference in Washington about Great my Mars Great paper. Great paper. And, I loved that thank, paper. That was a good paper. Thank you, yes. Um, and I called it The Discovery of Life on Mars simply to give it a, uh, a sort of a, an academic title. Uh, like what was Darwin's famous, the or, origin of the species, you know? So I came right, up with right. discovery of life. Okay. But anyway, um, uh, so, um, you know, Darwin being a fellow Cambridge man as, as myself. So I learned the style of that. And that's why I called it the discovery of life on Mars, even though I knew that we had had contact on Mars and we had actually been trained in humanoid and animal life forms um, before going up there. But um, uh, what was your question? So again? This- about Elon Musk and this whole thing about, you know, project, you know, uh, going to Mars, this program, you know. Right. Since what are I your thoughts on that? Being forward about my Mars experiences in 2009, I have had others try to reach out to Elon Musk, and he doesn't want to seem to be confused with the truth. Now, I think it's because <laughs> just Ronald Mallet wanted to discover time travel. So he was so derisive of me when we were being interviewed on, um, oh, um, uh, God, what's that? Uh, uh, I mean, you've been interviewed on so many things. Was that show that? Um, what was the show that the woman of uh, who was married to the uh, the HuffPo? I was on the HuffPo Lie with. Uh, okay. With. Dr. Ronald Mallet, and he was so derisive of me about my time travel claims because he still wants to discover time travel. And I was saying, look, Ronald, understand why you want to discover, you know, invent time travel. 
and achieve that as a scientist and go back and visit your father time-wise. But I'm telling you, we already did it. Okay, so he was like <laughs> laughing at appearing on HuffPost Live. Right. I was thinking of Ariana right, Huffington, right. the founder of that. So we're on HuffPost Live, right. and she's like, he's like laughing at me when I was talking about my experiences. In a similar way, I believe Elon Musk wants to be the one who breaks the barrier of human visitation of Mars, even though we were visiting Mars in antiquity during the high Egyptian civilization, and Americans first reached Mars in 1964 by, by a rocket, by the way, not not via the aeronautical repositioning chamber that those of us in Project Mars in the late 70s and early 80s did. But going back to 64, we lost two American astronauts on the surface of Mars when we sent them up there via rocket. So I think what's motivating Elon, an individual that I have a substantial amount of respect for, you know, he actually, among American industrialists, for example, not only did he invent a brilliant car with the Tesla automobile, but he right. he came forward very quickly to the Trump administration with uh, a, a plan to build ventilators to deal with the uh, the pandemic. So Elon Musk is 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 a remarkable individual, and I don't mean to criticize him, but I think on Mars he's been motivated to be the the breakthrough guy, you know, the the person who sends the first group of astronauts up there, and he won't be he won't allow himself to be confused with the truth. And this, in fact, is another aspect of the epistemological crisis in our country that I, that I would hope to address on today's show. When I, when I discuss in a minute way what I did in former lives, and a religionist says to me, well, sorry, Andy, but everybody is born once, and then the judgment, which is actually something that Jesus never said. It was actually uh, inserted in the Bible at the Council of Nicaea by the Emperor Correct. Constantine. Yeah in the 4th century yep. age. Um, Jesus actually talked about reincarnation when he did the example of John the Baptist being the reincarnation of the prophet Elijah. So Jesus was right. on the record talking about the fact that we, we basically reincarnate over and over again until we ascend, which he apparently did at the end of his last life. Um, hopefully right. we won't have to do the suffering that he did during our last lives. <laughs> yes. I don't think but anyway, I, I think that in answer to your question that Elon has to allow himself to be confused with the facts. And the facts are Americans first got to Mars in 1964. When they did, there were already Martian humanoids there. We were in radio communication with those humanoids going back to the early years of the, of the 20th century under Nikola Tesla. I believe he first made the uh, connection with the Martian humanoids via radio in 1902. Uh, we mm -hmm. were up there in large numbers um, in antiquity, so that the the Homo Martis Terrace Martians are just the descendants of Earthlings who went there thousands of years ago. So there, there's no wow. there's no opportunity presently for Elon Musk or any living person of any country to be the Christopher Columbus of Mars. You know, to be to be the the breakthrough artist. And I, I think that's what he wants to, to be. And I might add that I think that's another problem with our society. The problem is nobody wants to be the doors. Everybody wants to be Jim Morrison. <laughs> you know, you know, nobody exactly. wants the Beatles. They all want to be John Lennon or Paul McCartney. Okay. So 
we have to remember that everything on earth is done as an, uh, as an ensemble. And, you know, like when I do um, some of my books, I, I took like an interaction with uh, Joaquin Fernandez, Dr. Joaquin Fernandez about um, Fatima, the Fatima, the, the Fatima. Yes, um, yes, yes. Event the, of 19- three kids. Yeah. yeah. And, and we all yeah, the three Wa- children. Yeah. And the three, the three little kids. Right. Joaquin Fernandez and I ultimately involved 35 individuals from 10 countries in the Fatima Trilogy. And like Francis Ford Coppola, we gave every last person involved, whether they were um, a writer, a translator, uh, an artist, uh, a, a paranormal expert that we consulted, whoever. We gave everybody credit. And this is something we have to remember. Everything worthwhile that's ever been accomplished on Earth has been accomplished by ensembles of human beings. You know, Thomas Edison owned 1,040 patents or whatever it was because he was hiring of other inventors who he would then take the credit for so he could be viewed as the great inventor Thomas Edison. Okay. So the bottom line is that none of those Edisonian inventions that made our lives so much easier like the incandescent light bulb, would have been invented if there weren't people helping Edison. Agreed. And, you know, I I actually met with one of the office boys of Thomas Edison when I went to the Edison labs as a third grader. I was eight, Mm -hmm. this guy was like the eight, okay? And he talked about working with Mr. Mm -hmm. Edison. Okay, so Mm -hmm. one one thing we've fallen into as a corporate culture is Nobody wants to be in the movies. Everybody wants to be a movie star. Nobody wants to be Robbie Creek or John Densmore. Everybody wants to be Jim Morrison. Um, Mm. A dilemma that you know about in your field, which is medicine, where the allopaths aren't talking to the naturopaths and the naturopaths aren't talking to the allopaths. The the allopaths are calling the naturopaths quacks. And the al- the nature paths are calling the allopaths pill-, pill pushers for big pharma, when in fact the purchase of um, of uh, what is it Lund- uh, the famous um, complementary medicine journal um, um, that was yes, started by the Earshot John and when it was bought by the allopaths, what is that Longevity magazine or something like that? Uh, Anyway, we're already living in a world where we need complementary medicine. We need urgently the allopaths and the naturopaths begin talking to each other. This is something that I learned through experience when I lost my vision. The allopaths could give me a vitrectomy, which is where you remove the vitreous humor in front of the retina to get rid of the bloody water that accumulates in the retina. Okay, especially when you inject and they're with Avastin, which is a miracle drug at this point that saved a lot of people from total blindness. But at the same time, saffron has been used on the Indian subcontinent to improve macular vision and hence reverse macular degeneration for thousands of years in India, in Bangladesh, in Pakistan. Now, because the allopathic um, ophthalmologists are not talking the nature paths and the nature paths are telling people that the allopaths are their enemies and that they're bunch of, they're just a bunch of pill pushers for big pharma. We don't have a regime anywhere in America where if you develop macro degeneration 
from retina problems from whatever source, you're not both put in the hands of ophthalmological surgeons who can arrest certain processes and also given saffron, as people have used on the Indian subcontinent since, you know, about zero AD. Okay. This is a crisis. This is something I know you and I have an understanding that we're going to try to reverse this. We need to bring these two communities together. We Absolutely, need them. Andy. Oh, by the way, the magazine I was thinking of, which I really think is the beginning of the, the move towards complementary medicine, is Life Extension magazine. Oh, that right, was founded right. Life Extension. Two bodybuilders, Dirk Pearsaw and Sandy Shaw, and it was it clearly had a naturopathic thrust. It was then purchased by about twenty five allopaths, and they began putting their MDs at the back of their uh, articles and and extensively footnoting every claim made in Life Extension Magazine. I believe that the second era of Life Extension Magazine literally founded the era of complementary medicine in this country. But the problem is that the the vast majority of allopaths and the vast majority of naturopaths haven't woken up to that that point, to that fact. It's not a matter of one or the other. It's both. You know, John Naisbitt used to talk about that in medicine. Exactly. Not either or, but and, but, both, right? So that's what we need to be medicine. integration. We need to integrate naturopathic and allopathic solutions. I, I remember this amazing success that you've had with kids with autism and that woman with Lyme-related insanity that you used the yes. Rasha device on and just straightened them right up. That was amazing, particularly the woman who had the... Um, Lyme disease-related insanity, where she was trying to kick her own parents yeah. out of their house. And they were saying, honey, yeah. we're not going to leave. This is our house. And she didn't get it. And then you <laughs> put her on the Rasha, yeah. and like she calmed down and essentially lost her Lyme disease insanity like quickly after you put her on it. So this is yeah. an example of the amazing advances that sort of the liberal branch of medicine, the naturopathic branch, is holding in reserve, and the FDA has been interfering with, but at the same time, the the allopaths are to blame because they're always doing stuff based on standard practice. Well, wait a minute. Standard practice can be expanded with things that naturopaths are discovering. I mean, if I had just taken saffron and my macular vision suddenly improved, I wouldn't have needed to Mm -hmm. know that it's been used in the Indian subcontinent for several thousand years, but it certainly helps that a lot of people do. When a, when a Bengali friend of mine gave me that when I was starting to lose my vision, she literally laughed at me when I said, oh, I didn't know that uh, uh, saffron uh, helps your macular vision. And she said, yeah, there's a lot that those in the West don't know, you know. Um, right, and that's right. shout across all boundaries, national, regional, those artificial boundaries set up by religion, science, and philosophy. I mean, I distrust religionists now as much as I distrust scientists because everybody is basing things on belief rather than that the knowledge that experience confers. And so, for example, when Alan check out a naturopathic solution like the uh, publishers of Life Extension have really focused on doing since they bought the, the journal from Dirk and Sandy, that is creating an, a medicine that's based on experience not based on what they learned in medical school. Okay. Now I Abs- do think absolutely, um, Andy. most, most allopaths 
have a lot more to offer from their medical school training than any of us can get on uh, Google, you know. But sure. in fact, I saw a mug that said that it said my my medical degree trumps your <laughs> your your Google account any day, you know. I mean, it is true that Alabama oh, has a heck of a lot to offer because of their medical school training. Um, Absolutely, my parents are allopaths, so I get it. You know. Yeah. So. Yeah, but we have to we have to create um, a context in which the naturopaths and the allopaths can come together and understand that look, nobody has a has a wow. has a franchise on the truth. Where did new discoveries come from? They came from people making experimental discoveries or accidental discoveries and then testing them, and then they entered the realm of standard practice. Before that, things weren't standard right. practice. So we have to really forge um, complementary medicine by creating that that space, that context where both camps can look each other squarely in the eyes and say, "We're friends. We're not enemies. Let's create the well, most Andy, that's medicine that we can." That's the whole premise behind biogenesis, my friend, is to bridge and integrate both the allopaths with the naturopaths, and you know. I'm so looking forward to next year, um, you know, in Miami, uh, where we all will get together, you included, and we will address this, my friend. We'll absolutely address this. We have a few more minutes left. Is there anything else that you want to share with the listeners that you feel that's uh, vital and imperative? Because you've shared amazing information today. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, I would say that because the focus of my health problems has been on things that are damaged by metabolic disruption. And my metabolic disruption, by the way, was from Project Pegasus. It wasn't from diabetes, although it mimics diabetes. I was affected in the heart, the eyes, the heart, and the kidneys. So I've studied those three areas. And I want your listeners to know that we are on the threshold of remarkable inventions, remarkable devices that will extend the lives of many of us well over age 100, possibly as much as to 120. We're on the threshold, for example, and I know this from directly from an allopathic physician who's a renal expert confirming it to me, of, for example, having artificial kidneys. Now, we know they've been making artificial hearts for decades, but they're going to be developing a small little box that will be strapped to the kidneys and um, there will no longer be a need for dialysis. At the same time, people need to know, and I certainly didn't mention it in, in this program, but I've become evangelical about it, that we're in a diabetes epidemic in the United States. The, 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 uh, the safe reading from uh, fasting blood glucose in the morning is 100 milligrams of glucose over deciliters of blood. And a lot of Americans are walking mm -hmm. around 200 300, 400, 500. And how could they not have such fasting blood glucose readings if they can't go buy, let's say, a Wiener Schnitzel restaurant without driving past a, a, a Krispy Kreme donut shop? If you look exactly. at Americans, they, they are diabetes factories. When Bob exactly. Godley, planner, um, investigated the obesity rates in inner city schools in Los Angeles, the minute mm -hmm. they, they let the fast food companies into their um, school cafeterias, 
the obesity I'm rate done. among inner city youth in Los Angeles became 50% morbid obesity at high school graduation. If you look at your nieces and nephews, if you look at the majority of millennials, they're all battling Mm -hmm. at least marginal weight problems. Why? Because their great-grandfathers from the the mine mill and the factory and drink an eight-ounce sugared Coca-Cola, but they couldn't go buy a 7-Eleven when they were in junior high school before getting in their mom's car to be driven home after drinking a 64-ounce sugared Slurpee. Our children's generation <laughs> eight times the sugar as their great-grandfathers did. And their great-grandfathers oh. were working in blue-collar jobs where they burned off a lot of their sugar. I've become an right. expert <laughs> with my fiance uh, <laughs> Gwen's help in burning off my sugar. We test it every morning. If, for example, right. I'm elevated, I don't have my cornflakes in the morning. If I'm down around 100 again, I do. Okay, so... Right. So the American people need to know that we are in a, a, a diabetes crisis. Diabetes damages the eyes, the heart, and the kidneys. It's not some simple problem. The, I believe the allopath community should have been even more loud to all of us about the dangers of diabetes. I think that all of us should engage in fasting blood glucose monitoring in the morning with the knowledge that, for example, people found out that cigarettes cause cancer and they stopped smoking. I think the Surgeon General right. should... Re- and in fact, I called for this in my 100 proposals when I ran for president. We have a diabetes crisis in this country. So I would urge all of your listeners to begin testing their fasting blood glucose in the morning. There's both a device where you can prick the end of the finger and test your blood. There's also a new device um, where you can read through your blood. You know, you don't even have to prick yourself and read your glucose. But everybody mm-hmm. has to begin realizing that the the culture of fast food and all the different restaurants that are around America is, it's just ridiculous. Even just the hash browns that most of us eat at restaurants for breakfast is too much sugar loading in the morning. We should be having maybe the eggs and the, or the eggs and the sausage, but not the toast and the hash browns, maybe one or the other. Okay, to keep our glucose down in the morning. Now, eating higher glucose in the morning is better than any time of day. You should certainly avoid eating anything. You should really avoid eating carbohydrates for dinner and then get some exercise Absolutely. after or retiring at night. That's critical to not wake up with a fasting blood glucose of, let's say, 150, 160, 170, when it should be 100 or right. below. In if it's anywhere near 100, you're doing fine. You're, you know, diabetes begins at about 150. Um, right, but I'm right. saying the American people have not really been told that we're in this crisis, that it's damaging our eyes, heart, and, and uh, kidneys, that most of the heart disease in America is diabetes. It just ravages Absolutely. those systems. So we really have to share the word. that, like, We have to say to friends, hey, like, have you, did you do your fasting blood glucose this morning? Just like you would say to them, look, man, what are you doing smoking? Don't you realize that causes cancer? We're all really evangelical of that since the Surgeon General's report and then, you know, the Jeffrey Wigand case about how the tobacco companies were lying to us and all that. But we haven't gotten there in terms of helping each other get beyond the diabetes epidemic. And, man, we're in it. Um, You know, I would urge anybody in America, take your car around your community. 
and then categorize each restaurant you see as high, medium, or low carbo loading. You'll see a carbo loading uh, dessert-like restaurant for ice cream or donuts or pastries or something right next door to every restaurant. It's almost like we're intentionally designed as an urban culture to make people diabetic. And I just want your listeners to know that it's not funny. It's not funny. I got carb, uh, I got metabolic disruption from the from the project I was in that I had no choice of being put in. All the kids who teleported in Project Pegasus have been getting a disease that mimics diabetes, and now many of us are sure. starting to effects that people with diabetes get. And I just want everybody to know it's not funny. And if you want to save your vision, particularly with the damage being done to the retina from the blue light technology in cell phones and computers you also want right. to put those 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 um you want to put those filtering technologies over your computer screens and even a smaller right. one over your cell phone because the blue, blue blockers light, right yeah the, the the blockers that you can use so like if you're in a fedex office you can use your computer and nobody on your left and right can read the screen get one of right, those right put it over your screen because it'll block the blue light um, there's some. I also want people to know that just in the same way that artificial hearts and kidneys coming along, there are amazing things for the eyes coming along. There is, for example, a device called an eSight that mag- magnifies vision. In, with example, in people with uh, with uh, macular degeneration, one of the impacts of macular degeneration is that letters, you know, ten and twelve point letters become too small to read. Well, the eSight is right. a device. Put over your eyes, and it's it's streamlined now. It's not so much like the Kodak uh, Kodak type device that it used to be. It's now more kind of streamlined, like a pair of glasses. That can expand right. your vision by twenty four times. So as all of wow. us get older and start to experience retinal failure and macular degeneration, I want your your listeners to know that there there are devices coming along that will literally allow us to expand our vision by 24 times in terms of the size of letters. So I can take a 10-point letter and wear the E site, and it's about the, the, the letters become about the size of the name of a college on somebody's uh, sweatshirt, you know? Wow. And, and, you, and, yeah, and I can yeah. suddenly read my letters that I get in the mail. So, or, or, or wow. uh, you know, what, what's, what's posted on Facebook. I, I still have to invest in one of those, but I've checked them out and they're remarkable. So don't give up if you start to develop retinal failure or macro degeneration. Common effect of age and a very common effect of diabetes. Know that they're also developing devices to literally insert cameras into the retina. Um, and, wow. uh, and, and, and so wow. um, that's kind of where we're at. We're on the threshold of a set of prostheses that as all of us would ordinarily die of heart disease or kidney failure um, or give up because we become blind or whatever, the science and technology and largely the allopaths in consultation with such inventors are developing artificial organs that are going to be replacing parts of us. A lot of us are going to become, are going to become bionic people, Uh, you know, like the bionic woman and the $6 million man. Literally going to have things exactly. added to bodies that's going to expand our longevity to 100, 110, 120 years. So we're really 
at the beginning of a, of a golden age of medicine. Uh, so as long as we make it complementary and as long as we make the investment in going after the the diseases that are most damaging. For example, there's going to be 6 million Americans are going to lose their vision from diabetes, from diabetic retinopathy. Right. Million. Those people are going to have to eat, well, be driven places. So it's going to become expensive if we don't nip the diabetes epidemic in the bud with the next generation. Um, and with, well, I know and with, all, with, with your help, with your help and your knowledge together, Andy, you and I will absolutely be at the forefront of getting this uh, this movement going. I want to thank you, my friend, for taking time out of your busy schedule uh, to talk to all of us, the listeners, myself. And I absolutely look forward to seeing you soon, hopefully sooner than Biorigenesis next year. And uh, yeah, and you know, I, I end the show every week by saying, you know, truth is stranger than fiction, right, Andy? But wouldn't you want to live your life in truth than a lie? Uh, I right, want to thank Andrew Basiaga. Go ahead. Mark Twain said that, and I actually uh, quote that at one of the beginning of one of my three books in the trilogy about my paranormal experiences that I've, I've also written while legally blind. Um, yes, truth is stranger than fiction. And that's why we have to remain open to everything that naturopathy offers to allopathic medicine and, and balance the two forms of medicine. And I salute you for being at the forefront of that. I know that you're not an ill-advised naturopath suggesting that naturopathy can, re that can replace allopathic medicine. I know that you support my call for complementary medicine. And I know you also, Absolutely. You, you know, you're, you're a great individual, Jared, and, and I really cherish you as a brother and a friend. I mean, you're, you, you sent me to Malaysia when I had vision problems. I mean, that's really practicing kindness, as the Dalai Lama has advised us all to do. And I salute you for that, man. Thank you're you, you're the real. And I'm sure you're going to have, Thank and you. I've told you, you're going to have an incredible impact on your generation and on generations to follow because you get this. And your work you, has brother. actually at the forefront of complementary medicine. All right. Well, thank you, Andy. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. You be safe. All right. And uh, uh, let's just uh, keep it real. Always keep it real. I got your back. I know you have mine. And thank you for joining us here. All right. Take you got care. it, Chair. Talk soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye.